song. <clears throat> I never get tired of that one. It's a great camp song, and it's just a great song to uh, prepare our hearts and ready our minds for the things of God. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and take our Bibles, turn over to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. We're going to read verse 30, a familiar passage probably in most cases, but we're going to take a few moments and note the background, and then we're going to make an application tonight. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. The Bible simply says, And I saw it for a man among them. I should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Again, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Some years ago, <clears throat> I remember being a young guy and seeing all these Recruiting posters up everywhere. The Marines were looking for a few good men. <clears throat> Their Uncle Sam was there on the front cover at times, and he would be pointing a finger. I want you, is what he'd say. And then the Marines turned around and said that we're looking for a few good men. In our passage tonight, the Bible says that God's looking for a man. Amen. Ezekiel <clears throat> had been deported to Babylon during the captivity of Judah. His ministry is kind of unique. It's different than many of the pre-exilic prophets that existed in that day. Their ministries were often to either one or the other, to Judah or to the ten tribes. <clears throat> Ezekiel's ministry, however, is directed to both. It's directed to the whole house of Israel. He's found in chapter 22, reminding the people of the sins that landed them in their predicament. And again, he's speaking to all of them, both those that were taken in the Assyrian captivity and those that were taken in the Babylonian captivity, to the ten tribes of the north, to the two to the south. And in chapter 22 of Ezekiel, he begins to outline or lay out why or how they ended up in captivity. In chapter 22, we can look at verse 2, and we note that he says here, Now thou son of man, God speaking to and through him, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt shew her all her abominations. He speaks of the people of God as committing abominations. That's a very strong word that's being used in relationship to his people. Can you imagine being God's people and being identified as those that are committing abominations against the very God we say we love? That's what was ex happening in Israel and in Judah in those days. In verse 3 through 6, it says, Then say thou, thus saith the Lord God, the city sheddeth blood in the midst of it, 
that her time may come and make it idols against herself to defile herself, thou art become guilty in thy blood that thou hast shed, and hast defiled thyself in thine idols which thou hast made, and thou hast caused thine days to draw near, and art come even unto the, thy years. Therefore have I made thee a reproach unto the heathen, and a mocking to all countries. Those that be near and those that be far from thee shall mock thee, which art infamous and much vexed. In this particular case, they committed idolatry, even as the heathen that was around them. They stooped so low as to offer their very own flesh and blood upon the altars of their idols, literally placing their own children in harm's way and shedding their blood to appease the gods of the heathen and those that they embraced themselves. I can't even imagine sacrificing my child to a god of stone, or would. And yet, that's exactly what took place and transpired. And yet, if we would be honest today, there are a number of other gods we sacrifice our children for. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 9, he goes on to say, In thee are men that carry tails to shed blood, and in thee they eat upon the mountains, in the midst of thee they commit lewdness. In thee have they discovered their father's nakedness. In thee have they humbled her that was set apart for pollution. And one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife, and another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law, and another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. <clears throat> Again, we're dealing with God's people, and in this particular case, he is explaining and expressing the abominations that ultimately landed them in captivity. They committed this idolatry, even, again, shedding the blood of their own children. And here we find that they <clears throat> made a very downhill slide toward immorality and gross sin. Then we notice verse 13. Behold, therefore, I have smitten mine hand at thy dishonest gain which thou hast made, and at thy blood which hast been in the midst of thee. Now they deal dishonestly among others as well as themselves. <clears throat> These people, God's people, were dishonest. They were lying, cheating, doing whatever it took to get ahead. <clears throat> I wish I could say that God's people would never do that. But I think I'd be amiss, wouldn't I? Sadly enough, God's people did do those things. And as a result, they ended up in captivity. And a reproach. He continues to address their glaring character flaws later on in this chapter. I want you to look now as we draw close to our text, verse 25. Chapter, chapter 22, verse 25. He goes on to say, There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. <clears throat> they have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They've made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They put no difference between the holy and profane. <clears throat> Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her princes... 
in the midst of their in the midst thereof are like wolves <clears throat> ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain and her prophets have dubbed them that uh, with untempered mortar seeing vanity and divining lies unto them saying thus saith the Lord God when the Lord hath not spoken <clears throat> the people of the land <clears throat> have said excuse me have used oppression and exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Now in this passage, chapter 22, verse 25 through 29, it becomes abundantly clear that there was not one innocent person in the nation. Now there may have been somebody that was trying to be right with God. We say we got a prophet here and a prophet there, but hold on. Overall, as we look... We note every single facet, every single aspect of their, their country was in a mess. I mean, notice her prophets, her religious leaders, her priests, those that offered sacrifice, her princes, those that guided the nation and those that made decisions on behalf of the people. The, the people themselves that they even talk about directly here. <clears throat> no one was without guilt in this whole situation. The people couldn't say, well, if it wasn't for those prophets and those priests, I'd be fine. No, they couldn't say that. The princess couldn't say, if it wasn't for those religious people and all these people that wouldn't follow our leadership, we'd have been just fine. Can't say that. Everyone had to shoulder the responsibility of the wrath of God that came upon them. Now listen, we live in America. We live in a nation where we're seeing some horrible things taking place. But listen, before we point our fingers at Washington, before we tell that it's the president's fault or some, uh, some, some representative's or senator's fault, before we look at our political climate and blame our problems on them, listen, we need to look at ourselves and realize we've given the ground up already. There's nobody to blame but ourselves. <clears throat> Then comes the great statement and the sad truth, our text. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. And I sought for a man among them. Among what? Among the people, among the prophets, among the priests, among the princes. I sought for a man among them. I'll take any one of them. Just give me a man. That should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. That I should not destroy it. But I found none. Notice in the passage four four word statements. He says, sought for a man. Make up the hedge. Stand in the gap. But I found none. Doesn't that bother you? I don't believe it bothers Christianity enough, though. Because I, I believe tonight that God's still looking for that man. And yet today, if, a, if, if you would ask me behind closed doors or at my desk, and you'd say, well, how do you feel things are moving along in the church as far as men being called and men being sent out and men being used? I'd say we're in a pitiful condition and terrible shape today. I'd say there aren't men stepping up. There aren't men giving their life. There aren't men yielding themselves wholeheartedly and completely to the will and work of Jesus Christ. That's what I would say to you. 
I'm sad to tell you today that Christianity is in a real mess because we got men that would rather go to college and get a degree and make money than to go on the mission field and win souls. I'm sorry to tell you today that Christianity is in a sad shape because we're more concerned about being married and enjoying our families than we are about creating a reward that will last for eternity. There's a problem today in America, and it doesn't begin in the White House. It starts right in the pew. And God is looking for a man. He's searching for a man tonight. Don't think for a minute that we're in any less desperate condition than they were in that day. There's no less idolatry taking place. Although we may not be literally sacrificing our children on the altars of Molech, we are certainly sacrificing our children on the altars of the sports. Children will not be in church all summer and all fall and all winter because they're involved in leagues around the world, it seems. I got my kids in this sport and in this activity and that thing, and all along God is left in the fore, in the, in the shadows somewhere. Moms and dads who fail to give themselves wholeheartedly to the work of Christ, to the will of God, and they're unwilling to read the Bible and pray with their families. They're unwilling to step up and say, we're a Christian family. We don't go to places like that. We don't do things like that. We don't read things like that. We don't watch things like that. We don't go there and do those things. We lack that today. I believe God's searching for a man today, too. That's not just an Old Testament passage that has been long forgotten. I believe today that there's a renewed vision in the eyes of God and a renewed need in our day. And God is searching for a man. And tonight, I want to share four types of men God's looking for. And really, it's one man, and they're all wrapped together. First of all, we're going to pray, and then I want to share these four with you. Father, we come to you. We ask, dear God, you'd help us in these next few minutes. Lord, I pray to God... That some men catch the vision. Because Lord, if they don't, the church is going to die. Lord, there is no guarantee that you'll find faith when you return. That's a question that's asked. Lord, oh, the church will still be here, no doubt. But we'll have lost our power. We'll have lost our influence. Lord, if we lose that, then, Father, that we'll have no impact, and souls will die and go to hell. Family and friends will perish. God of heaven, help us to realize that it's going to take a radical decision in our lives to truly make the impact that you demanded and that you require of us. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, I believe God is searching for a man whose eyes are open. Whose eyes are open. The king of Syria warred against Israel. And he was, took counsel with his servants. And he said, in such and such a place shall my camp be. I'm going to put my camp over here at this location. And in each case, his plan was foiled. And he was sure without a doubt, that there had to be a spy among them. Syria being the enemy of Israel, Syria being the one seeking to destroy them, to take them over, said, we're going to set up our 
Weapons of warfare against Israel at this location. We're going to set up our operations tent right here. And all of a sudden it seemed like Israel knew exactly what the king of Syria had to say. And where he had, was going to set up and what his plans were going to be. Surely there had to be. There had to be a spy. But one of his servants went to the king and said, Nay, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. He said, they got this prophet over there named Elisha, and he's telling the people, the, the, the king of Israel, everything that you're trying to do to them. He's, he's, he's telling them your plans. It's as though he's sitting in your bedchamber, listening to you make those plans, and then he goes and tells the king. Well, he therefore sends some soldiers to take Elijah into custody. And I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. He's going to go get Elijah. Elisha, excuse me. He's a little bit perturbed. He's frustrated. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, we pick up our reading. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. They came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the, of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant saith unto him, Elisha's servant, mind you, Alas, my master, how shall we do? I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, look at all these horses and chariots. Look at all these men of war surrounding us. I'm looking over the hills and there they are. What are we going to do? I know they're after you. They must have obviously found out that you're the one that's feeding information to the king of Israel. What are we going to do? He goes on then. And he answers, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Really? Gehazi looks up into those mountains and says, are you kidding me? I'm looking. I don't see anybody there. All I see is the, the, the warriors on behalf of the king of Syria. All I see are those that are going to take us into custody. All I see are those that are going to torment us the whole way back to Syria. All I see is a bunch of trouble and I see the enemies of God. And no hope. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. I said, praise God, his eyes were opened. His eyes were opened. But may I say today, that's not the man I want to be today. I don't want to be Gehazi. I'm telling you today, we got too many men like him today. Too many men that see with physical eyes. Too many men that can't see the spiritual warfare. Too many men that don't recognize that there's a God on the hillside in power and in strength there to protect and to overcome the enemy in our lives. Let me tell you, we need some Elishas today that already see with spiritual eyes. 
The reason why our nation's going topsy-turvy and upside down is because we have men of God that look at the gas prices and think somehow we don't have a God in heaven that can overcome. We look at the situation with the sale of property and we say things like, well, this was a bad time to buy a building. This was a bad time to go forward for God. This was a bad time to have a vision to reach more souls for Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, we need some Elijah's today. we got too many Gehazi's eyes to see with physical eyes. And God's searching for a man that sees through spiritual eyes and not just the physical. He seeks a man who's not blinded by ambition or possession or notoriety or fame. He's searching for a man whose eyes are open to the real need of mankind. I'm sure that food and clothing and shelter are needed. I know I need them and you need them and we all need them. But let me tell you, those needs pale in comparison to the need of the unregenerate soul whose unquenchable thirst cannot be met by mere mortal needs. There's parched soul scream and cry out for just a drop of the life-flowing water that proceeds from the lips and the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. God help us to realize there's more need than just a house on a hill. And there's more to life than just a new car in the drive. God help us! Men and women dying of spiritual hunger. Being fed the scraps that Satan throws their way. But the only way that need's ever met is by the bread of life. God help us. He's looking for a man. He's searching for a man today whose eyes are open. Not only that, but God's searching for a man whose ears are sensitive. I think of Samuel over there in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Let's turn there, would you please? 1 Samuel chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, we read, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. The words of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. But the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. He ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down, and the Lord called yet again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, I, for thou didst call me. He answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. The Bible tells us that there was no open vision in that day. See, there was great sin in the camp in those days. 
Eli's boys, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked indeed. Very wicked. They had abused the sacrifice, they'd taken advantage of their position, and they used it to abuse the very people they were to be serving. The Lord was so disappointed and so disgusted with the state of the priesthood that he told Eli, your two sons will die in the same day. On the heels of that news, we arrive at chapter 3. And the statement given, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days, there was no open vision. No open vision because there had been such an onslaught of sin. God's word was scarce. It had been muffled by the sin and selfishness of those priests. Samuel, however, was one whose ears were sensitive to the voice of God. See, God is searching for a man whose ears are sensitive. God's searching for a man whose ears are sensitive to his voice. A man who's more interested in hearing the voice of God than the accolades of man. A man who's more interested in hearing the voice of God than listening to the local news. A man more interested in hearing the voice of God than keeping up with the latest blog, tweet, or Facebook post. Is there a man whose ears are sensitive to the still, small voice of the Lord Jesus Christ today? Is there a man like Christ who finds the time to frequent the stillness in order to hear the thunder of heaven? Tonight, God's searching for a man. He's looking for a man to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge. He's looking for a man. Not men. A man. A man whose ears are sensitive, listening for that voice, who blocks out and, and will not allow the, the, the busyness and the hectic world to, to drown out the voice of his Lord and Savior. Who will not allow the busyness of life and its schedule to keep him from the Word of God. Will not allow the, 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 the total chaos and confusion that affords us in this day and age to keep him off his knees in prayer. God is searching for a man who will open that book, get on his knees, and listen for the voice of God. In Ezekiel's day, there was no man. I found none, he said. I could not find a man whose eyes were open. I could not find a man whose ears were sensitive. God is searching for a man whose ears are sensitive. But not only that, but God is searching for a man whose heart is tender. Just after experiencing the mighty hand of God and delivering them out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt's Egyptian bondage, God then supernaturally enables the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea. Moses then makes his way into the mount where he's there to receive the law. In Moses' absence, the people craft a golden image, a calf, an idol, and they worship it. I mean, he's gone 40 days, obviously even less, before they finally make up their mind to move on without him. 
after all the victories, after everything they've experienced, after all they've seen, 30 days later, they're crying out to mold a golden calf in which they can bow down and worship. What a great picture it is of that lifestyle that we left behind. That after being saved, we go forward in supernatural regeneration and the indwelling of the person of the Holy Ghost in our life. But then, in such a relatively short time, we find ourselves going right back to the very idolatry we left. Moses, of course, comes out of the mountain. God is extremely upset. Those two tables of stone that bore the Ten Commandments are crashed and crushed. And God's wrath is unleashed. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 30 through 32, the Bible says, And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make an atonement for your, your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast Oh God, they've sinned a great sin. They deserve your wrath. But God, if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out. If you won't receive your people, then God, don't have anything to do with me. I stand in their stead. I want them to be saved. But I am willing to take the punishment with them. The great prophet and the man of God is heartbroken over the sin of Israel. So much that he stands in the gap on behalf of the people. See, God's looking for a man. Searching for a man whose heart is tender. Who has compassion for others. Who's willing to literally give his very life, his all, for others. Moses was a married man, gentlemen. Moses had children, and yet that's the heart of a man of God. Is there any wonder he's still searching? He's searching and searching and searching for a man whose heart is tender like Moses's. And finally, God is searching for a man whose mouth is anointed. Look in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 1.
the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. See, God's always been searching for a man. He's always been searching for a man. In this case, Isaiah steps up to the plate and says, God, I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm a big zero as I look upon holiness, perfection. Sinlessness, I'm nothing. And God takes from off the altar a hot coal with the tongs and as he puts it here, places it or touches his lips with it. He lays it upon his mouth and touches his lips. And I mean to tell you, God places his word in our mouth. God supernaturally intervenes and he's looking for a man of God whose mouth is anointed. He's looking for a man of God whose words are rooted in the truth and not in the philosophies and ideologies of this day in which we live. A man of God who will stand and thunder the truth of the word of God who will not apologize for believing what God says, who's willing to say, no matter what the cost, I will stand and raise the banner high. God is searching for a man. It is not the most comfortable position in the world. It's not the most compensated position in the world. It's not the most elated position in the world. But it is the best position in the world to be the man of God. And God is searching for a man that will do those things. Men that will, whose eyes are open, whose ears are sensitive, whose heart is tender, whose mouth is anointed. Do you know what the problem's always been? We all look to our neighbor. We just look next and say, he can't mean me. Who's going to step up? I'm looking. I don't see. Who's going to step up? That's what we say. We're waiting for someone else to be that man. But God's saying, I'm searching for a man. And tonight, I want to ask you, will you be that man? Will you be that man whose eyes are not blinded by this world? Whose ears are not stuffed up by the activity of this world. Whose heart is not corrupted by this world. Whose mouth is not defiled by this world. 
Will you be that man that stands in the gap and makes up the hedge and saves a nation going to hell? Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have this statement that ought to break our heart. This reality. But I found none. I found none. He says over in the book of Luke, chapter 8, 18, excuse me, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? I think that's an amazing statement in light of the fact that the church is going to be here when he comes back. Oh, I know prophetically it could be dealing with that portion of time when he returns the second coming. But the second coming's in two phases, so I've got to believe there's an aspect of this particular prophecy that applies to you and I. Will he find faith? He's searching for a man. Oh, go ahead. We can continue to remain seated. We can continue to wait for someone else to stand. We can continue to wait for someone else to take up the cause. We can wait for someone else to bear the banner. We can do that. Yes, we can. But I got a a sad feeling, a bad feeling, that if we don't do something here, nothing will happen there. He sought for a man. Will you be that man? Will you be that man, Brother Sam? Will you be that man, Brother Dean? Will you be that man, Brother Sean? Oh, I know, I know. And we could go through every single person in this room. But let me ask you something. Who's going to do it if you don't? Who's going to be that person with open ears? I mean, who's going to be that person with, sensitive, uh, with, with open eyes, I mean, and sensitive ears and a tender heart and anointed mouth? Who's going to do it? And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me in the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. I hope tonight that God finds a man. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be a part of your family. But as we grow in you and as we learn more about you, We realize that you demand more of us, to whom much is given, much is required. Help us, Lord, tonight to be honest with ourselves. Are we genuinely willing to be that man? Oh, understanding, Lord, that it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be the one standing in a pulpit pastoring a church. It may not mean that, but are we willing to be that man that will stand in the gap and make up the hedge? Are we willing to be that man whose eyes are open, whose ears are sensitive, whose heart is tender, whose mouth is anointed? God, help us tonight. Lord, we need you. We can't do it without you. Bless this time, Lord. And if there be any that are without Christ, that do not know for sure heaven's their home when they die, I pray that they would have the courage to take a step into that closest aisle, make their way forward, and there meet me at the front where we can have someone take a Bible and show them your precious promises and how they too can be saved. 
We'll thank you in Christ's name. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In just a moment, as the music begins to play, you come. Mrs. Joshua, go ahead. You saw it for a man. Will you be that man? Will you be that woman? Aren't you tired of mediocrity? Aren't you a little sick of just getting by, just doing what it takes to look good amongst your peers? When down deep in your heart, you know there's another level that you've just not attained to. God's calling you. You hear his voice. Are you willing to listen now? Your ears are sensitive enough to hear the cry, the call. Are you willing to say, I'll be that man? I'll be that man.